I have two things to tell you about. We are doing our next Weekender class. Now, our Weekender course, we used to do this thing called the Gospel class. And the Gospel class was eight weeks long, gave you basic Christian theology and then elements vision of how we understand who God is and then who He calls us to be in the world. And that was our membership class. We changed that to what we call the Weekender. And the Weekender is a Friday night and Saturday morning. We feed you dinner on Friday night and we give you snacks throughout the day on Sunday morning. But we go through that almost the same amount of stuff that we did in the gospel class is just a lot shorter over a weekend. And if you would like to come to that, that is October 6th and 7th. Uh, that's a Friday night, Saturday morning. You can put that on your calendar and you'll get to know more about us and how weird we are and you'll never come back. It'll be great. Uh, <laughs> The second thing I want to tell you about is we have a thing called a fall market coming up. The fall market is also on October 7th, so this is really great. If you go to the Weekender, you're already here. And there's a bunch of local vendors that come together. They try and do their best to make sure that there's not a lot of overlap so everybody has different things. And I think there's still two outdoor spots available if you are a vendor for that. But that is October 7th. Put that on your calendar. You can come and check out all the local stuff. And I just want to, you know, piggyback on the whole baptism announcement thing. If this is your first time here, you haven't been around very long, you're like, I don't know if I should go to something like that. You should come. It's just a big party where we gather together. There's, are there maps anywhere? The maps at the Welcome Center will tell you how to get there. We are going to feed you. Again, if you like, I don't have time to go to the store in four hours and get a side. Well, show up anyway. And maybe if you show up and it's like, yeah, I don't like this. This is weird. Guess what? You can leave. No one's locking you in. You can be like, I just want to go. But if you have one o'clock, come by, celebrate with us. It's going to be great. And I just want to give you a caveat about this. I got this puppy. Uh, my puppy is about nine and a half months old right now. And I thought I got a dog, but I got a billy goat. And she goes around. So there's holes in my backyard now where she decides she's going to eat grass and dirt. So just keep your eyes out. Don't fall in one. I'd really appreciate it. Because yesterday I was like, I am not filling in another one of these holes. I was just done. And I probably should have filled it in because, yeah, when there's a couple hundred people in my backyard, I just don't know. So, hey, come to baptisms. It'll be fun. Welcome to Element if you are new. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, the way we are doing sermon notes for this current series is we have these binders. As I keep saying, you do not have to take a binder. Please do not feel like that. It's not like, here's your tin foil hat and your tennis shoes, recite these words. It's not what we do. Uh, but we give you these binders because each week we're giving you some supplemental material that goes along with it. And we want you to be able to have all of that. The supplemental material for this week is this eight steps of real repentance from Psalm 51. And we're going to talk about Psalm 51 today a bit. And we thought this went really well with it. That is not on the communion tables as sermon notes. That's supplemental. It is extra. Again, it's outside with the binders. The sermon notes that are around the room look like this. And on the left hand or right hand side, you're going to get the verses we're going through. You're going to get a place to write down some notes. On the other side over here, you're going to get vertical questions. And these vertical questions are really about what is God doing. And then you have internal questions. Internal questions are, what is God now doing in me? And then underneath that, you have horizontal. That is, how do I now live that out with the world around me? Because it's not just what God is doing in us. It's what he is doing through us. 
And so on the bottom of that, then there's some action steps. You can grab one of those. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes. Uh, you'll get a link to our forgive page on our website that has all of these resources we have had every single week. Um, you'll get really everything you need for what we're going through today. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Psalm 51, verses 3 through 5. And it says this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Let's pray. Father, today I ask that we would understand what these words mean in terms of repentance, that we would understand David's story and where he is at and then where we are as well, so that we'd be a people who return to who you call us to be, that we would live in relationship with you and that you would be glorified and that we would then live in that joy that you provide. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so if you don't know, we are doing a series called Forgive or Forgiveness. It's very important for people who trust in Christ to learn how to forgive. And I have been telling you that I am freely plagiarizing this series from Tim Keller's book called Forgive. It's the last book I read before he died. Talked to a couple people on staff about it, and they said, yeah, you should really do that and talk, because I just said how great it was. And normally, I will have the next couple years planned out of what we're going to go through. Not that I've written it all, but just plan where I think God is taking us as a people. And like six weeks before we were starting the next series, we changed and went to this because I thought it was so important. Uh, broken relationships are a major problem, not just in the world, but in the church as well. And God gives us a way to restore broken relationships by understanding our own salvation, our own redemption, what He has done. And so what I said is forgiveness is key to being in restored relationship with God. And only if we understand the gospel, what Jesus has done through His death and resurrection, can we ever hope to move into reconciling relationships with one another. And so today I'm going to take basically chapter 8 in this book. I'm going to distill it down for you as best as I can. And all these weeks so far we've been looking at our forgiveness, like someone hurts you or how we have hurt God and we get this forgiveness. Today we're going to kind of turn a little bit and look at what repentance begins to look like. What we do with our own guilt when we do something wrong. Because there are a lot of people today who will say things like, I understand God's forgiveness but I just can't forgive myself. And not to be offensive in any way, but if you have ever said that, it shows that you don't really understand God's forgiveness of you and what it truly means. There's this whole industry today of self-help and therapy that attempts to help people with this idea of self-forgiveness. But the problem is this whole industry of this lacks the vertical dimension. It doesn't look at what God first does in our life and how we live that out. And so we have to understand where the basis of our forgiveness starts. It's in what God does. And so we were made to be in relationship with God and relationship with one another, but that has all been broken. And people today who who don't believe in God, we still walk around with this low-level sense of anxiety or shame. The Bible calls that guilt. It calls it sin. We talked about this last week. And so the ideas of self-forgiveness in this therapy include, number one, asking for forgiveness from anyone you've wronged. Great. Sounds wonderful. Second, taking responsibility for what you've done wrong. Also, sounds great. Third, learning lessons from the event. I would hope we would all do that. Fourth, being as compassionate to yourself as you would be to others. Okay. Five, then moving on with life when you finally accepted yourself. Now, I am not saying that 
you know, none of these steps have any merit. I think they, they really do. But a secular approach has no way to help anyone judge between what would be true guilt and then what would be false guilt feelings. Like what does a person do who does all of these steps and still can't rid themselves of guilt feelings? Like how do they quote unquote accept themselves? Trying to find meaning and acceptance in ourselves always ends up leaving us more empty than we were before because we know something is missing. We are not the missing piece that we need. And if we don't understand that we have first sinned against a good and a holy God and that has brought a brokenness into our lives, we're never going to understand our own forgiveness. Today's culture has declared that we are our own highest authorities. We are the center of our lives. We are to find ourselves in ourselves. Relationships should only be engaged in if they make you feel better, if they support your own chosen identity, your interests. You have to be true to you. And so today alone, what we do is validate ourselves and judge whether something is good or bad based upon what we want. So what happens then when you become weighed down with guilt? What happens there? There's no outside agent that has the power to overturn your self-imposed verdict of yourself. If you are the center of your life and you still feel guilty, what do you do with that? Now, the Bible reveals the core of this problem. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 says, If our hearts condemn us, because when we're really honest, many times our hearts do, we know that God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than us. The scriptures teach us that God is the only final judge of who we are and what we have done. Anyone who has seen the depths of their sin and really come to terms with what that means is never going to be okay with forgive yourself, you deserve it, because we know in the end that we don't. In the Western world today, people are now trying to work through issues of sin, not by actually dealing with it, but we minimize it. We bury it. We say, oh, it's not really a sin. Oh, it's not really a problem. We just push it away. You have to understand this. Christianity, it does not minimize our sin. It does not minimize our guilt. It doesn't minimize our wrongdoing, but it shows that God provides a powerful antidote for that guilt. It's to live in the forgiveness of us that He has done in the gospel, what Christ has done to set us free from sin and death. This is why our lives always go back to what Christ has done. To experience and live in divine forgiveness requires making a crucial distinction between true guilt and false guilt. Okay, so true guilt, these are deeds that are done that just, they're objectively evil, right? Uh, you form a boy band or, you know, things like, it's just objectively evil. You're guilty no matter what anyone else feels about it. False guilt is not where there may not be any guilt at all. It's just out of proportion with the deed. Like you make an insensitive comment somewhere and your entire life gets canceled. Many times that's out of proportion. There are true guilt and false guilt feelings. And the only way to discern between true and false guilt is to have a standard by which you judge the difference. And that standard cannot be us because we are fickle. We are always changing. Jesus says, Luke eleven forty six. You experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Jesus will talk about how we violate the law of God, murdering, stealing, committing adultery. That's, that's real guilt. But he will also imply that there is a type of guilt that a lot of people live in that we just place on one another. And that may not be real guilt. It is man-made rules. You should not feel guilty if you do not keep all the numerous legalistic, man-made, religious rules that we love to come up with today. 
For years in Christianity, you had this group called fundamentalists. And I don't know why they call them that because fun's in the name, but they're not fun at all. But uh, fun, fundamentalists, right? They had this thing where you're not allowed to have playing cards in your house because it might lead to gambling. So playing cards in your house was a sin. We can have even a whole discussion about whether gambling itself is a sin or not based in the scriptures because I think that's a good discussion to have, but you can't have playing cards. They would say things like, you can't be around someone who had a glass of wine or drank a beer. They might burp on you, and then, oh my goodness, you're going to become an alcoholic. That's terrible. They would go so far as to say, Jesus' first miracle, where he turns water into wine, they would say, that's not really wine. What that is, is that's really good grape juice. This is like the best grape juice ever, because back then, you know, purest wine was grape juice. This is spoken of by people who probably never tasted wine in their life, right? <laughs> this, this is, oh, yeah, it's grape juice. No, there are Greek words for grape juice. Wine is not one of them. <laughs> anyway, man-made religious rules really say a lot about the people who make them more so than the people they try and impose them on, in my opinion. And I don't know if you've ever seen a really religious group of people who lay man-made rules on people. If you think you haven't, look at our culture today. Our culture has a bunch of man-made religious rules while claiming to be non-religious. They place a bunch of rules on people, and it is very religious. And if you break those rules, you get canceled. There is heaps of guilt. So the first step in helping someone yourself with guilt is to ask, is what I have done truly a violation of the will or the word of God, or are they man-made rules? Now, again, part of our problem today is that we are far too happy to violate God's word and God's will and treat God's word like man-made rules and treat man-made rules like they came from God. We have to be able to understand and walk in the difference because when we take man-made rules more seriously than what God says, like today we have changed the definition of love or acceptance and forgiveness. It's taken us nine weeks to get where we are today and how much different is our understanding of forgiveness than what our culture says today? And is why the religious leaders in Jesus' day were always finding loopholes to try and get around their own rules. Think about something like survivor's guilt. Now, this is where in a tragedy, car crash, plane crash, war, one person survives and someone else does not. And instead of many times someone feeling relief and peace, many people find themselves riddled with guilt that they survived. And they start to ask these questions, well, why was I spared? And that guilt usually comes from this inner feeling where we know we're not brave or as virtuous as we should be, as maybe that person who died. And so we feel like we ought to be more virtuous than we are. The only way to deal with this understandable but persistent guilt is you look to the Word of God. Because it is God who determines in His providence when and where some people die and others continue to live. There should be zero guilt in that. And this is really important. Keller says, time will not heal true guilt. The only thing we can do to deal with true guilt is take it to the grace and the mercy of God. What do you do with false guilt? The exact same thing. The only way you deal with that is take it to the grace and the mercy and the word of God to see what he says. Keller writes this, moral effort and prayer will not heal false guilt. The only way to deal with false guilt is to take it to the will of God and understand it in light of his word. We want to do that with everything. Take everything to the Word of God. So when there is true guilt then, what do we do? What do we begin? Well, we begin to live in this thing called repentance. If you have a Bible, open to Psalm 51. If you're using one of the Bibles at Element, that is on page 304. Uh, but today we're going to look at uh, King David, Israel's greatest king, ancestor to Jesus. Psalm 51 kind of starts like this. He says, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now, when David wrote these words, it was after he had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, had her husband killed, and then took her as his wife. God exposes David's sin to the world by this prophet named Nathan. Nathan shows up and tells David, this is sinful. David runs from his sin, and only when it is exposed is when David began to pray. And so what David does when it's exposed and he realizes it is he steps into this thing we call repentance. Repentance is a process. And repentance is not these people in downtown New York City with the sandwich board, repent, the end of the world is nigh. Repentance in a Hebrew mindset meant to return. You return to who God is calling you to be, return to Him, because that is the only hope that we have ever had. And so Keller gives three things about re what repentance is not, two things that we do in repentance, and one thing we receive. So we're going to talk about this. If you're taking notes, write these down. I think these are really good. Or not? Okay. Right. So here we go. <laughs> three things. First off, true, true repentance, it is not blame shifting. It's not blame shifting. Real repentance takes full responsibility for our sin. So this is what David says, Psalm 51, verses 3 through 5. This is the verse I had you stand for. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now this goes back to what we talked about last week in terms of these ideas of original sin. But we tend to make excuses many times for ourselves where we blame shift. We say, I'm not greedy, I'm thrifty. I'm not proud, I'm assertive. I don't drink too much, I'm just the life of the party. I'm not abrasive, I just tell it like it is. Uh, there are sometimes we partially take responsibility. Oh, I wouldn't have done this if you were a better spouse, boss, friend, coworker, whatever. I shouldn't have said that, but they provoked me. Blame shifting sometimes will even take the person who has said something to try and say, hey, this may not be great. And you start to kind of point the finger at them like they're the problem. Like you would say, well, maybe that was wrong, but you're being far too sensitive. Or I probably shouldn't have done that, but you did this first. And I cannot tell you how many married couples fight this way. They say, oh, you know why? I only did this because you did that. Look at what you made me do. No, you are responsible for you. You are. The first time humans sin in the Bible, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. We will only begin to deal with our guilt when blame shifting ends. And what David says to God is, you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. He does not try to diminish his responsibility. There are no excuses. Repentance looks at its own responsibility and says to God, like Nehemiah 9.33, and all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous while we acted wickedly. There is no blaming God, no blaming others, no blaming circumstances. It's just, this is what I did. Keller writes this, only when there is no longer pretense or evasion can the conscience be cleared. Now, my wife and I, we watched a few years ago this BBC show called Broadchurch. Uh, I watched it because it had this guy named David Tennant, who was the best Doctor Who. And if, yeah, all right, if you disagree with me, you can be wrong, but I'm right. Uh, anyway, but that's why I watched it. The, the show is really slow and kind of boring, but the Forgive Books talks about this show. I thought it was really kind of interesting. Uh, there's this mystery in this town where this little boy was murdered. There's a local detective. Her name is Ellie Miller, and she can't believe anybody from the town could have done this crime. Now, Alec Hardy, Doctor Who, I mean, David Tennant, uh, isn't from the town, and he argues with her. And he says, anybody's capable of murder given the right circumstances. And then Ellie Miller says, most people have moral compasses. And Hardy says back to her, compasses break. Compasses break. 
Hardy says what the Bible says. We cannot be in denial about our capacity for evil, which means blame shifting is one of the most horrific and dangerous things that we can do. Repentance begins where blame shifting ends. Second thing is repentance is not then self-pity. It's not self-pity. False repentance is sorrow over the consequences of the sin and the trouble it's caused us, which many times results in self-pity. So David wrongs Bathsheba by using his position of power to have an affair with her. He wrongs Uriah by having him killed. He betrays his people's trust by, as king by abusing his power. But David says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he doubles his words, against you, you only, which indicates this intensity of emotion. Where is David looking? The vertical. What most secular culture just leaves out, the vertical. I have sinned against you, God, by doing this thing. His heart is breaking as he realizes what he has done. He sees, ultimately, I have betrayed God. God who has saved him over and over again in his life. God who has installed him in the position that he is in the kingdom. And David is not saying he didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba, but rather that his sin against God was first and foremost foundational. To it all. Martin Luther wrote that you never harm others without breaking the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. If you lie in order to make money, money has become your God. If you lie to protect your reputation, your reputation or yourself is now more important than God. David grasps that. Owning our sin against God is the opposite of self-pity. Some people think if I sit in self-pity, well, that's repentance, but it is not. In self-pity, our sorrow is not over how we wrong God or others, but over the trouble it has brought to us. And this is why when the consequences begin to go away, many people slide right back into that same old thing. I knew this guy would blow up at his wife and his kids all the time. It was, it was ugly. It was, I think it was gross. And eventually, his wife takes his kids like, we can't live in this environment. And she leaves. So he's like, oh my goodness. He goes to get help after a couple months. They move back in together and it started to work out really well. About two months into that, he went back to the same patterns of behavior. Why? Because he was not primarily sorry for how he wronged his wife and dishonored God. He wasn't sorry for the sin. He was sorry for himself and what it had brought about. And self-pity never leads to change. The Forgive Book says this, to be sorry for the sin itself takes love. And that'd be love for his wife, love for his kids, ultimately love for God. But he was loving himself more than any of them. If he really hated his sin, it would begin to lose that attractive power over him. And I'm not saying you don't slip and fall in certain places. But self-pity many times looks like repentance, but it is self-absorption. And that is the essence of sin. Stephen Charnock makes a distinction between what he calls legalistic repentance, which is that self-pity, and a gospel-based repentance. He says legalistic repentance comes about from just a fear of punishment, while true repentance comes from an understanding of God's goodness, the vertical dimension, the vertical dimension. He says the language of a repentant heart says, God, I am in sorrow because of the consequences of my sin, but they have awakened me to the wrongness of what I have done, how it has wronged others, and especially you. Repentance begins where self-pity ends. 
Third thing is this. Repentance is not what we would call self-flagellation, and that means false or excessive forms of repentance. Like, this is where a person can get really very loud and sometimes very intense in their self-loathing. I'm so terrible. Look at what I did. I'm just the worst. And eventually people are like, oh, no, 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 you're okay. And they do that because they want people to understand, I feel really bad about that. Self-flagellation refers to people who would hit or beat themselves or beat themselves up verbally to show how sorry they are. And there's this inner logic in this that goes, if I beat myself up enough, surely that will show how sorry I am and I will atone for my sin. I will show God, I will show other people how sorry I am. And this false self-hatred, it rejects God's forgiveness and makes you think the only way you will feel better is after you have felt bad enough. And that's not true repentance. John Newton, in the 1700s, wrote to a young man, who is constantly depressed with the sense of uh, the sinful inferiority and he's just unworthy. Newton wrote that it shows great spiritual pride and self-righteousness to indulge in morbid self-hatred. Ooh, ooh, it's funny and it's true. He writes this, though our self-recriminations are good insofar as they show dislike of sin, yet when we come to examine them closely, there is often so much self-will, self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and patience mingled with them that they are little better than the worst evils we complain of. Yeah, self-centeredness. That is not repentance. Most people, I don't think, move to a place where they experience God's grace because they are not truly repenting. Repentance begins where blame shifting, it is not my fault, ends where self-pity, I'm sorry for what it's cost me, end and where self-flagellation, oh, I feel so terrible, no one should criticize me, where all of those end. And then what happens? Well, in true repentance, though, there are two things that we begin to do. And this is as a result of what God has first done in our response. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So here we're told, first off, we confess. Uh, this is the word, the writer of Proverbs, he contrasts with the word conceal. We're no longer trying to conceal. We are confessing. To confess means make a full, clean admission of what the wrong is, without qualification, without excuse, without minimizing. The Hebrew word for confess always has the idea of praising and thanking God. Why? Because we can go to Him, and He loves and restores us. Confessing a sin is not just telling the truth. It's admitting that we've been failing to love and honor God and we intend to glorify Him. We confess. Second thing we then is we forsake. Forsake. Forsake is means to make a full renunciation of that sinful behavior in our heart, attitude, and in practical action. It means that we, in practical action, reverse the wrong behavior, not to earn God's forgiveness, not to earn His favor because God gives that to us in Christ, but to show we understand what our actions did to others and what God is calling us into. This is the interesting thing. When people in the Bible come to John the baptizer, he's baptizing in the Jordan River, and they go, well, what should we do? That's because their hearts were broken over what God was doing in them. And they're like, how do I honor God? In Luke 3, verses 12 to 14, tax collectors also came to be baptized. Well, we know what they should do. And said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Tax collectors in that time could collect more than they were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. This is, this is not do these things and God will love you. It's this is a result. We want to change. We want to live differently. So what do we do in response? This is how we live. Repentance is not only an admission of the wrong, but a heart that finds that sin horrific and we plan to change as a result of what God has done in us. 
Keller writes this, false repentance is sentiment only. True repentance offers a change in behavior. Now, what's the last part of this? Well, true repentance, there is one thing that we receive. God's forgiveness, after we repent, it must move to a place of rejoicing because we understand the free mercy of God. Repentance without rejoicing is going to lead to despair. And it's going to lead you right back into those three things of false repentance, blame shifting, self-pity, and self-flagellation. Proverbs 28, 13 says that we get mercy. This Hebrew word for obtaining mercy, what it refers to is a mother's womb and has its understanding in the context of how a parent feels towards their newborn. See, false repentance, it demands that forgiveness has to be earned. And many people will do that first part of Proverbs 28, 13. We will confess and forsake, but we never move to the vertical, the mercy that God gives to us. And so we keep saying, oh, I don't feel forgiven. Oh, I can't forgive myself because we don't understand the mercy. Too many people today despair because they never believe that their standing with God is by sheer mercy. It's not by what we do. Many will talk about grace, but they base this grace on the acceptance of God because of their performance. And it's not really upon grace. When a person falls into sin who is operating on the belief that they are saved by their moral life, they are constantly trying to work it off. I will do it. I will figure it out. I couldn't go to church because lightning would strike me and the walls would fall over. Wow, I mean, that, that, that's a lot. You know, like John Newton, you're looking at yourself a whole lot there when you say that. People are never ever to lay down their burdens at his feet. And this is what we see so much today, going back to where we started. A lot of people today will begin to carry guilt as a way to pay for their own sin. I will hold on to this guilt, hoping that God or others will eventually declare that they have suffered enough. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus comes, he dies in our place, for our sin. Who's the one that suffered? You're in church. You can say it. There, this is when you say it, Saving is now. Jesus, right? This is it. Because this is the point. Jesus suffered in our place on our behalf. You don't have to suffer. By suffering yourself, you are not trusting in what Christ has done for you. We must let the greater recognition of our sinfulness lead us to the place where we see the magnitude of God's mercy. That mercy should move us to the place where we see the greater amazement of His grace. And that mercy and grace should move us to the place of rejoicing. Because of what God has done. Our forgiveness is not based on us working it off, but on Jesus who gave himself for us. Repentance begins when confession and the acceptance of free grace take place. And this is why when we talk about Jesus, not just, oh yeah, this is all great. It's why we surrender our lives. Where Jesus says, trust in me, surrender yourself, become born again, and I will lead you into new life. In Psalm 51, 14, David will say he knows he has blood guilt for Bathsheba and Uriah, and yet he has confidence in the forgiveness of God because of God's steadfast love, not because of what David's doing. The steadfast love does not let David off the hook for his sin, but that steadfast love showed David that God is committed to his people, and again, not because of what we have done, but because of our trust in him and what he has done. That is an unconditional covenantal love that God gives to his people. David knows his unworthiness, and yet he has a confidence in the grace of God that God can and does accept him. As we've said, one of the reasons we find it so hard to forgive today or walk into places of repentance is we don't understand our own forgiveness. And we must understand that. Many times we have not truly repented because we have not been honest about our own life. 
If you feel unworthy and not confident and think you're going to beat yourself up, hoping that God will have mercy because of how much you beat yourself up, then you will feel self-pity and you will not change. David becomes absolutely humble when he sees his sin. He knows he's unworthy and yet he is completely confident in the grace of God. Now here's the thing for us. We have less excuse than David to live in self-pity, to live in blame shifting. You know why? Because we live after the cross. We get to see what David had only hoped and thought about in his heart. We live on the opposite side. We get to see historically, Christianity is an historical faith. We see Jesus came and he lived and he died in our place for our sins to bring us to God. We get to see the culmination of all that David hoped for. The cross lets us see that what David deserved and we deserved, we didn't get. We get grace and mercy, and that's really the secret to changing. Looking to Jesus on the cross in the greatest act of love, He takes our sin upon Himself and exchanges it for His own righteousness. He takes our death and He gives us His life. When we see Jesus dying for us and we understand and come to grips with the reason that He died, it makes us want nothing more to do with our sin. It makes us want to learn to live in forgiveness because we have received it. We get to live in this. And this is why I keep telling you, the place to understanding forgiveness is understanding the vertical first. God to us, what He has done. And only by living in the trust of what He has done will lead us to places where we can live in true repentance where we're not trying to hide the things that we have done, but we make a full confession. Why do you make a full confession? Not because we're doing it to make God love us. It's a response to how God has already loved us. That God has brought us back to Himself. That God has brought us to Him, given us grace. This is one of the reasons every week at Element, we come to this place where we wrap up a message and we invite you to communion. Where we remember what Christ has done for us to bring us to Himself. This is why you take a cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. And you dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of His blood that was shed for you and me. This is what He has done. And it's a great place, every, especially if you know, you're dealing with guilt and shame or all this stuff in your life. You come to this place and remember that He is the one who paid the debt. We surrender our lives to Him. That's how we become born again, by trusting in His provision over us. He becomes our King. He becomes our Lord. He is already that. But we surrender our lives to Him and trust Him in it. And we get to then begin to live and walk in new life because of what he's done. And this is why, again, you break that cracker. This is why you dip it in the wine of the grape juice as a reminder of his goodness and grace given to us. That we can now live lives of transparent honesty with one another. Because he is the one who is good. And if you need prayer today, maybe you are in in a place where you feel like I have done these things and I'm sitting in guilt and I don't know what to do with it. And you want somebody to pray with you about that right across the way in the lounge. You can go during music. You can go after the service is over and you can talk with them. They love to pray with you. If maybe you have some questions about what I've talked about this morning, you can also go ask them some questions and they would love to talk to you about that. We want to be a people who begin to deal with the things that God is first dealing with in us. And so we want to be open to what God is doing and how His Spirit is leading us in those ways. Uh, At Element, we do not pass a plate. Uh, We believe that God calls us to be a generous people, and we think the best way to do that is a response to what He's done. This is why there's offering boxes on the side wall. You can give online, but we don't pass a plate because we want all of our lives to be lived in response to what God has first done. 
And I encourage you to grab uh, those sermon notes. Again, if you want to grab a binder, they're right outside. Kind of walk those different things from Psalm 51. Walk through those questions with one another and begin to talk through that. Understanding what real repentance looks like. What the beauty of grace that we receive becomes so we can be a people who get to rejoice and, and celebrate how God saves us like today at baptisms. We're gonna, we get to celebrate with one another because of God's goodness, because of His grace. And we get to be a grace-filled, rejoicing people who get to be honest about everything because our God has brought us to Himself and accepted us by what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who remember your grace given first to us, that it is not something we earn by how we confess. It is not something we earn by how good we are. It is not something we earn by our self-flagellation. It is given by grace. And so I ask that you would teach us to live in that grace, that our eyes would move off of ourselves. And they would look and they would see you. And that we would then begin to live in your mercy. And by living in that mercy, it would lead to a joy, that there would be a difference in our lives. Not that we don't take seriously the wrongs that we have done. We take them very seriously. We repent in real ways. We confess, we forsake, but we do that because we know we are held solidly in your hands and you have brought us to yourself. And so we ask that our eyes would be upon you in all that we do. But understanding that would really lead us to that place of rejoicing, of renewal, of hope, because there is hope, but that hope is only found in you. And so teach us to trust and glorify and walk with you, that you would lead us to the place of understanding the purpose of the cross, that you would give us a glimpse of how good you are, because I don't think we'll ever be able to understand completely how good you are. You give us a glimpse of that, and that would change us and again, move us to that place of rejoicing because of the mercy that we have see, received, the grace that we have received, that our lives would turn and be those that glorify and honor you. And we ask that in your son's good name. Amen. I'm going to drop these curtains as we do. We're going to play a couple songs. Take a moment during the first part of these songs, and I just want you to ask God's Spirit to do a work in your heart. Ask God where you have set yourself up as your own God, that you have looked to you to be the center of your life and not who he has called you to. Because when we become the center of our lives, we are so fickle. We change so much. And so the center is always moving. And so ask God to show you where you have placed yourself in his place. And then ask him, say, God, show me how to remove myself from there and to put you as the center of all that I do so I would worship and honor you. And in that, show me the places now where I can freely repent, confess in honesty, understanding your grace, so that I would move to the other side and begin to live in joy. They don't have to hide from the things that I have done, but I get to live in sheer grace and sheer mercy because of your goodness.
and then come and take communion, remembering what he did for us, sing some songs. We will head out these doors. You'll go to get a side to share, some cookies or both, and you will bring them to baptisms, and we will have a great time together, hopefully. And uh, God will be glorified because God will be glorified in all things. Guys, let's be those who understand God's grace enough that we get to live in this transparent honesty in all of our lives.